Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon in the heat, as you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him, even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done.
Do you believe what I'm telling you? <laughs> Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. <laughs> you promise? I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> Your water! You forgot your um. Come on. And I would challenge that what you just saw doesn't even come close to describing the reality of God's heart for people. His desire for us is staggering, is it not? That scene is taken from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. I, I can't encourage you strongly enough to read through it several times this week. When you're reading through it, you're going to see that the third verse says that Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Judea to the Galilee, and they had to go through Samaria. Now, when you watch, watch the episode of The Chosen, I encourage you, I've been doing this for several weeks, 
I really do encourage you to watch The Chosen. I think it's one of the best things Christians have put out. It really is creative, phenomenal, awesome. But you got to go back to the scripture because the scripture actually says something just slightly different. You need to go back to the scripture to know what the scripture says and what is the artistic license of the writers. But let me do this. Let me give you a very rude, rudimentary geography of Israel at the time. Think of three blocks that are stacked on top of each other. This, re this really doesn't matter. So you got three blocks. Israel of the first century had two regions. You had the Galilee in the north, and you had Judea with Jerusalem in the south. Those two regions together made up Israel. But in between the two was actually an area called Samaria. And the text says, John 4, 4, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And it would be easy to assume that he had to go through Samaria because the only path through to, from Galilee to Judea was through Samaria. But my granddad used to say, you know what happens when you assume. If you don't know what that means, don't look it up. Anyway, truth is that's not the case. When Jews would travel from the Galilee to Judea or Judea to the Galilee, they would actually bypass Samaria and they would go around via the path of the Decapolis. They journeyed on foot and to be able to go around Samaria means they doubled the length of their journey each and every time they did it just to avoid the Samaria and to avoid the Samaritans that were in there. So catch the significance of this. They really did not want to be in this area. They would be in danger. These two groups hated each other. Now the text tells us, remember, that Jesus and his disciples were down here in Jerusalem already. Again, in the chosen, they indicate that Jesus was traveling from the Galilee to Judea. The text actually says the opposite. So Jesus and his disciples have already made a trek. They have already traveled from the Galilee down to Judea, and they went the normal route where they went around. But this time, John 4, verse 4 says, on the way back, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And again, we can assume that this had to do the expedience of the path, that he had to somehow get from point A from point B. But it wasn't the expedience of the path. Hear me. It was the importance of a person, a person that, let's be honest, feels a lot like us. John 4, verse 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about, note it, the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, surprisingly, give me a drink, for the disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the woman, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, not only a person from Samaria, a woman for Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, I will confess to you, I have a hard time really getting into the feelings of this passage because I have never experienced such aggressive and overt racism that would want to cause me to stay away from somebody of another race, not to have anything to do with them. Now, don't mishear that. Do I struggle with prejudice? Yeah. I challenge every human being struggles with prejudice. We look down on someone, we struggle to see every person from different cultures, different sizes, different shapes, different genders, different races. We struggle to see other humans as God wants us to see them. But the kind of prejudice that would have me double the length of my journey every time I did it, 
Do you know that faithful Jews in the Galilee would actually travel to Jerusalem three times a year? They would go for the feast, and every time they went, they doubled the length of their journey just to stay away from the Samaritans. I mean, come on, I cannot fathom that kind of animosity, that kind of racism, but that is the reality of what's going on here. You see, the Samaritans, to understand them, you have to go back 750 years prior to the time of John 4. The Jews, because of their lack of faithfulness to God, are taken over by a empire called the Assyrians. The Assyrians take the vast majority of the Jewish people of the time and remove them to another country. But a few Jews are left behind, and so what they do is they intermarry with the non-Jews that are there at the time. Not only do they intermarry, but they take some of their faith, the Jewish faith, and they intermingle it with some of the faith of the non-Jewish people at the time, and they have this alternate syncretistic form of Judaism at the time. No doubt that was a problem. Well, see, what happened was, Jews came back to the land because God has promises for the Jewish people that we're still seeing fulfilled today. He brings them back to the land. They find this Samaritan people who have this alternate form of Judaism, a false form of Judaism, but instead of trying to love them back to the true form of God's ways, instead of trying to influence them back, no, they saw themselves as superior they saw themselves as the real people of God, and these were less than people of God, and the Samaritans responded in kind. And so over a course of hundreds of years, there was a hatred to the point that they would not come into close proximity to one another. So this is the situation Jesus had at the well. Add to this racial diversion that this woman was at the well at the sixth hour, at noon. Women in that day went to the well usually early in the morning and late at night, twice a day, but not this woman. So count this. She was a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews have nothing to do with each other. She was a woman. Men and women of that time did not talk to each other unless they were married to one another, and they never did it when they were alone. And number three, she was there at the noon hour because she did not want to be with anybody and no one wanted to be with her. That's one strike, two strikes, three strikes, and you're except with Jesus. And with Jesus, you are never out. In fact, it seems that it is this shame-filled, supposed second-class woman that was the reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And she said to him, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. And now we know the reason she's there at the sixth hour. Now, some people might begin to think, well, um, uh, she could have just been widowed five times, a lot of stuff like that. No, no. If she had been widowed five times, she would not be there at the noon hour. Now, there's some other reasons that she's there. She's been divorced several times in her life. That's huge in that day. And so the woman said to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think? I mean, she has done, he has done read her mail. I mean, he is right there where shame has brought her again and again, day after day. Have you discovered yet that shame makes you do things where you're harder on yourself than you need to be? And this woman did the exact same thing. Jesus reads her mail. I find it interesting. Jesus tells her things about herself that she, he could know in no other way, and she automatically assumes that he's a prophet. We would not do that. Most of us would say this, how'd you know that? How'd you get that information? Did you Google me? Did you go after me on Facebook? Did you look up all that stuff, right? We don't have a grid in our mind for the supernatural, which is to our demise, by the way. 
See, when you encounter Jesus, the supernatural becomes more and more natural. You just got to open your eyes to it. This woman experienced that reality. So in verse 20, she asked Jesus a pressing question between Jews and Samaritans. Maybe the most pressing question. It was about worship. Do we worship the true God in Samaria or do we do it in Jerusalem like you Jews say? Now, some people think that what this woman is doing is trying to get Jesus off track. I mean, he has done, done God up in her business. You know what I'm saying? They're getting really personal really fast, and she don't want to get that personal that fast, so she tries to distract him with a doctrinal question. I don't think that's what she was doing. I think she perceives there's something about this man, and so she goes to the heart of the matter. She asks the question. She says, where is God? And does he want to have anything to do with a person like me? Can a person like me worship? And I would challenge that there are people all over right now, North Campus, South Campus, a lot of people online, you're thinking the same thing. Maybe I can kind of get close to God, but I can never be one that really worships him. He would not want my worship after all I've done. Think about her life. Five times divorced in a world where a woman could not divorce a man. That means five times a man had said to her, you are not enough. You're not pretty enough, you're not influential enough, you're not productive enough, you're not industrious enough or whatever, you're just not enough. Five times she was told, you are not qualified to be my wife. And now she has a sixth man who's saying the same thing. He's in essence saying, I will use you, but I will not see you as one who could be my wife. See, hear me, she wasn't off on a doctrinal tangent. She's not trying to tell, get Jesus off of her life. She wanted to know what every one of us wanna know. With all the ways I have failed in my life, is God done with me as well? But interestingly, her question is formed around the idea of worship. See, I, I have this thought. Something within the framework of every human wants to worship. In fact, I'm going to throw out a thought to you. I want you to mark it on your notes. I want you to think about it. I want you to chew on it. I want you to contemplate it, but I would challenge you that every person on planet Earth worships something. Now, I know immediately some of you thinking, no, 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 that's not true, but we struggle with the thought that everyone worships something because we have a narrow definition of worship. We hear the word worship, and we think immediately of something we attend on a certain day. We attend on Thursday. We attend on Sunday. We go to a worship service. Or we think of what we do in part during those services, we sing worship songs. And so we know that not everybody on planet Earth comes close to attending a worship service, nor do they sing worship songs like maybe we sing worship songs. But hear me, worship at its very core is much, much broader than a time and a place and a specific activity. You see, worship is where I declare with the way I live my life that someone or something will fulfill the deep needs within me. It is the choices that I make with my life. It is the way that I think that says I am going to find acceptance. I'm going to find belonging. I'm going to find security. I'm going to find significance. I'm going to find purpose in life. All these deep things we have, I worship when I believe someone or something will fulfill the deep need within me. So I would suggest to you we in our culture worship money. Because often we'll just think that there's no problem in life, that just a little bit of money can't resolve. And if I think that's going to fulfill the security need in my life, then I worship money. Or if we ask the question, what do you think so-and-so is worth? 
We all know when we say that question, what is so-and-so worth, that we're meaning how much money do you think they have? And if we equate somebody's worth with their net worth, then we are worshiping money. Dad challenge, we worship comfort and achievement and pleasure in our culture. Right at the top of what we worship, human sexuality. It is everywhere. And every time I mention that word in church, it gets really quiet. Human sexuality is everywhere. Sexual freedom, sexual expression, sexual exploration, sexual exploitation. Biggest business industry in the world right now. You know what it is? Pornography. It puts every other industry to shame around the world. Staggering how much of it's out there and how much money it is producing. There's actually a new issue arising. Just in case you weren't uncomfortable enough, I'm going to add to it right now. There's a new issue that's rising up because, in large part, because of the internet, because of uh, smartphones and things like that. Social scientists are calling it PIED. It's an acronym, P-I-E-D. You know what it means? You probably don't want to know because we're going to be all uncomfortable. I get that. It actually stands for pornography-induced erectile dysfunction. And some of you are thinking, those poor old dudes. It's actually not an old dude issue. It's a young man issue. That young men, because they have been so engaged from such an early age with pornography that when they get into a real relationship, which you hope is a marriage relationship, that's God's way, that they have an inability because of all the pornography, because reality doesn't fit fantasy ever. It's actually better, but we don't know it. I don't have to say any more than that, do I? It's enough discomfort, okay? We worship. We all worship something in life. See, it could be that the woman at the well, this woman that was the reason that Jesus broke so many social customs of the day. I mean, he committed so many social faux pas in this instance, and he did it because of her. It could be that she had actually developed a sexual addiction in her life because of what had happened to her. It could be that she thought that a husband would fulfill the deep longings of her life. I mean, I know that is an issue maybe in the first century. Probably not today. I mean, no one would ever think if I just got married, if I found the right man, whoo, I found the right woman, man, then everything in my life is going to be taken care of. And every married couple actually begins to laugh out loud at that. We don't chuckle. We're not subtle at all. <laughs> yeah, we just do it because we know it's not true. But here's what happened. Deep down, we tend to believe it because you can actually worship another human being. You can think another human being can meet the deep longings of my soul. And when they do not, which, by the way, they cannot, because a human can never be to you what only God was intended to be to you. And when you place the expectation of God upon another human being, you doom them to failure. But what we will note is this. We will not notice it to be an issue of worship. We will think it's an issue of the person. And so what we think is, I must not have found the one. And so i got to get rid of that one so I can find the one. And we keep going and keep going. And sometimes you look up, and it's one, two, three, four, five. Interestingly enough, Jesus went after her too. 
It tells us about the nature of the Messiah. See, the ultimate issue for this woman wasn't that she had been divorced five times. It wasn't her current live-in. They were merely symptoms of the real issue. We, in the social scientist world today, we actually have a, a statement that we talk about presenting problems. There are presenting problems, and there are real problems. The presenting problems from this woman were the marriage, the relational issues. But the ultimate issue for this woman, and it is the ultimate issue for every one of us here, the ultimate issue is that of worship. I know this because if the woman was seeking to distract Jesus with a doctrinal question about worship, I think Jesus would have got her back on track to the core issue. I think he would have saw through it. But she asked a question about worship, and what does Jesus do? He responds with an answer about worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, speaking of Jews, what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, notice, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Hear the word, spirit and truth. For they are the kind the Father is seeking. Think about it. God is looking for something. We can bring pleasure to the heart of God just by being those who do what he longs for, which is worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. This was after he told her what? Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the water of Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the living water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will spring up into a well, welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus had to go through Samaria to find a specific woman because she represents us, all our failures. All our mistakes, all the garbage we've done in life, all the ways we screwed up, all the ways we failed, all the way we messed up. And Jesus went and said, I came looking for you, for that is why Messiah came. Messiah came that everyone might have within him or her a spring of water that continues to flow and continues to flow and continues to flow. In an age and a place where water was one of the most important things you could get, what would it be like to never be without? Would that not be satisfying? See, that is what Jesus is crying out, that deep satisfaction is available to you and I, and it comes from true worship. Not worship that's about a time or a place. It's not just about an event. It's not about the types of songs we sing. Worship that brings ever-deepening satisfaction is in, hear the words, spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the one called Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now this word Messiah, this word Christ, same word, two different languages. They both, in Hebrew and in Greek, they mean the anointed one. In the law, the prophets um, and the writings of the Old Testament, there is prophesied a coming king the anointed one who was going to deliver not just Israel, but he was going to deliver uh, both Israel and the world from their sins. She looks and Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. From what we can see in biblical text, this is the first time Jesus says this. Now, I know some of you are saying, hey, dude, I watched The Chosen like you told me. 
I've been through several episodes, and he's already told his disciples that he was the Messiah. That is how the chosen chooses to interpret some things, but it's not in the text. See, remember, I told you to always go back to the Bible. In the Bible, the first human being to know that he is the Messiah is this woman at the well. The only other entities that recognize him are the demons. He would face demonized people, and the demons would go, we know who you are. And he would, in essence, say, I know who I am too, shut up. And he would cast them out and be done with them. This woman, amazingly, the first person he reveals his reality to. Why? Why to her and not to the Roman government officials? Why not to the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders who knew the law? Why not even to a fellow Jew, someone who was among the chosen people? The first person that Jesus told, I am the Messiah, is an outcast among an outcast people. Why? Because Jesus came for the outcast. Jesus came for those who failed. Jesus came for those who made mistakes. Jesus came for those who've messed up. He came for people who knew better, for people who said, I would like to live a life of worship, but I don't feel like I'm worthy any longer. And he's saying, I overcame that. See, the amazing truth of the Messiah, listen to me, he came for everyone. He came for you. He came for me. He came for people around the world. He came for all. Jesus is the way. Now, he is the only way, but he is the way any person can be right with God. And worship that brings satisfaction to the soul lives their life based upon a truth. Hear that word. The truth that Jesus brings. One of the reasons for the crisis of mental health in our world right now is because we have a crisis of truth. Listen to that. One of the reasons that we have a crisis of mental health, and I don't think any of you would argue with me right now that there is a crisis of mental health. There's a crisis of truth. Think about it. We are, live in a world that loves to say truth is relative. What that means is this. Well, what's true for you may not be true for me. And what's true for me may not be true for you. And that sounds so awesome. But if truth is that relative... It means that we have to discover, we have to create our own truth. It's a little bit of pressure, isn't it? But add to it this. If truth is relative, nothing is stable. Nothing is secure. Nothing is foundational. The world's just chaos. And if the world is just chaos, I have a lot to be worried about, right? I have a lot of reasons to be depressed. I, I have a lot of reasons to be insecure. See, a big part of the journey we are going to start next week is that we want to flip the script on the idea of the culture, this relativistic truth. is actually, I would challenge you, as a lie of the enemy regarding truth. Listen to me. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the truth. And as we learn... To think in those terms. We learn to live in those terms. We learn to worship in those terms. Then what we find is deep satisfaction. Does anybody think that having strong mental health would be satisfying to us as humans? That's what Jesus came for, uh, for, to bring to you and I. That's why I implore everyone, go on the journey with us. I mean, even if you're not certain about Jesus right now. You're here just exploring. Maybe somebody brought you here because they drug you here. They guilted you into something. Maybe they promised you like a steak dinner or something like that. Just go on the journey with us and see if it's real.
Jesus will show you. See, I just implore you, I'm asking you to do four simple things for six weeks. It's not a long, a long period of time. Participate in every worship service. It's real simple. You can come to one of our worship services on Thursday or Sunday at two locations. We have physical services. We have our online services. We have demands. You can make them. You can participate in a small group. Again, you can do this online or you can do this in person. I just encourage you, participate. We have a lot of new groups starting up right now. So you say, I really don't know anybody. We're going to have groups of people get together that don't know each other as well. They'll get to know each other. It doesn't mean we're all going to become besties. It means we're just going to help each other some grow into what it means to flip the script. If you're at one of our physical services, North Campus or South, you can go to the foyer, South Campus to the South foyer, uh, North Campus, we only have one foyer there. You go there, you can sign up for a group, or anybody can go online, beltway.org. You can see the thing on the front page that says flip the script, get on it, and you can sign up for a group on that page. I want you to read a book called Winning the War in Your Mind. You can pick one up, physical services in the foyer. It looks like this. The words in it are pretty big. And there's good spacing in here, so it's not as bad as some of you think, okay? You can read it. Some of you say, I just don't read. I don't read well. What I've discovered, there's a whole generation of people that they didn't know about learning disabilities, especially my age. What I've discovered with people like that is you'll listen to the books on audio. Maybe even get the book and follow along while somebody reads it to you. You'll be surprised how your mind can stay focused. You can do that as well. You can pick up a book, Physical Services, in the foyer. We're suggesting $10, but if $10 keeps you from getting a book, you just give what you can. If nothing, that's okay. You get a book. We want you to engage. Other people will give money to do that. In our online family, you go to Amazon or another online retailer, they have these books all over. I encourage you to get one of those books, and then I want you to invite a friend. You'll notice that the first thing that this woman did when she heard about the truth of what Jesus brings to her life, the satisfaction she could have, she went and told other people, let us be the same. We're going to give you a coupon for a free book uh, when you get one of our books and such. And we want you to give it to someone and have them come and they get a free book so they can participate in this journey with you. Now, some of you are trying to game our system. Because we've had some of you just turn around and try to give the coupon back and say, I want my free book and I'll give it to my friend. No. It doesn't work that way. Your friend has to show up. You say, why does my friend have to show up? Refer to number one. Participate in every worship service. Saying, you're just trying to get them to come to church. Yes! I think it's pretty obvious, right? We want to do it together because we feel like God's got a work he wants to do in people's lives. Do what this lady did. This woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Catch that. He knows what I did, and he still wants me. He knows everything that's happened in my life, and he came for me. All of a sudden, her mind was blown by the reality of who Messiah is and his heart for people. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Do you notice when she left her, when she left, she left her water jar. It was noted in the scene you saw. And some of you think, well, she got in a real big hurry. I, I, I don't think so. How many trips do you think she had made at that water, with that water jar at the noon hour in her life? Early in the morning, she would hear the women get up, just talking away. Women have always talked, I'm just telling you. That's not a new thing. And they're having all those conversations. She's left out. 
the evening, the same thing would play itself over day after day after day after day. And when everyone was taking their siesta in the heat of the day, she would go get it. That water jar brought to the well at the noon hour, for noon hour, it represented all the reasons for her shame. Her disgrace, her feeling disqualified to have a life that worshiped God. And what did Jesus do? In a moment, Jesus took away the shame. That is what the truth of Jesus does. It is so radical, it is hard to believe. It is staggering and life-changing. We will spend the totality of our eternal existence unpacking the truth of God's heart and we will never fully understand it. It is that grand and great. She worshiped him in truth by embracing who he was, but she worshiped him in spirit with an overflow of a heart, grateful for his love, overwhelmed by his grace, thankful for his mercy. She used her life, her words and her actions to worship him, worship that was in spirit. And I would challenge in the days to come, she found ever-deepening satisfaction in her life because she became one that worshiped the Father in spirit and truth. So it seems appropriate that we would spend some time responding to Jesus by worshiping in song. And I know some of you are thinking, hey, you just told us that this isn't worship. I didn't say that. I said this that we're doing is not the totality of worship. But it is a part of our worship. A more important part than you think. We are implored to sing songs of worship far more often than we are to read the Bible. Have you ever wondered why that is? Music gets inside of you like nothing else. That's why we old timers who used to watch shows that had theme songs to them, it's why we can still almost sing the Beverly Hillbillies theme song <laughs> verbatim because it's in us. Gilligan's Island, Mickey Mouse Club, See, I know you dudes are all saying, no, I didn't watch me. You do it. Every dude in fifth grade had his first crush on a Mouseketeer. That is reality. We tried to be manly, and it wasn't the case. I know who mine was. You know who you were. We'll all confess it. We'll go to boot camp. We'll be great, okay? We can sing the theme song. It gets in us. It's why what you engage music-wise is so important. You're going to hear it and flip the script. But big part of our journey to mental health is just recognizing lies, and above our lies, we declare the truth. And there's no better way to declare truth than in song. The songs of Jesus have done so much to change my life. I love to worship. I stink when it comes to music. I do. I get close as I can to the loudest point I can be so nobody can hear me because I'm terrible. I don't care. I just don't care anymore. If you care how I sound, don't stand by me because I'm going to be loud. And I'm going to give him everything I've got because I'm telling you, it's done more to change my mind. That's why I listen to worship all the time. I worship all the time. I was in my yard mowing it the other day, and it's a self-propelled mower. It's awesome. I can remember when a kid, you had to push those things. Now it just goes by itself. I'm one arm in it, and I got the other one up. I got my earbuds in as loud as they can go. I'm already going deaf. It doesn't matter. And I am declaring the truths of God over my life, and he is bringing sanity to my head. Taking on the mind of Christ is so important, so I encourage you, let's engage. If you are online, the hardest piece to be in online is worship. 
And so you're just going to have to really, really, really push in to engage. Use that great sound system that you had put in. Turn it up. You get on your knees. You throw your hands up. You do whatever you do. Let us be a people with our songs this morning, with our lives this week. Let's bring pleasure to the heart of our God and be the worshipers he seeks. Let's bow our heads. Let's get our hearts ready. Father, we love you. And we want to be those who worship in a way that would bring pleasure to your heart and soul. So give us grace, oh God. According to your word, we have to have a power from on high to grasp the height, the width, the breadth, and the depth of your love. And so we ask for that power. I ask for an impartation of your spirit that would show us wherever we are right now, in our homes, in our worship services, south or north, wherever we might be, give us a power that could grasp a little more how much you love us, how great is your heart, that we might be filled to all the measure of the fullness of your son, Jesus. That from us, from within our being would flow the rivers of living water. We declare, oh God, what we know is true, that the only satisfaction that we will find to the deep longings of our being will be found in you. So this day, oh God, we will lift up our voices. We will lift up our hands. We will bow our knees. We will declare with our songs the greatness of who you are. But from this place, oh God, we are going to go living lives doesn't even matter if it's as simple as eating or drinking. We're going to do it all for the glory of your name. So give us grace, oh God, to worship you as you deserve to be worshipped, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. South Campus, let's stand and let's give worship to our God.